0: Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneur Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg
1: In chapter 18, Dr. Rebbe began explaining how being Jewish is something that's very near and dear to each and every Jew. And even someone who doesn't have the ability to focus, to meditate, to concentrate, but even to that Jew, to be Jewish and to live an active Jewish life is something that's very dear and near to each and every one. Based on the idea that every Jew has a natural love for God, a hidden love for God. And that touches the very core and essence of every Jew. And we see a Jew's readiness to martyr himself, to sacrifice his life for God. So every Jew has this intense, powerful love and connection to God. And he can't be disconnected from it. So much so that he's ready to martyr himself rather rather than bow down to the idol. Disconnect himself from God. So it's this natural love that you don't have to create. It's there already that forms the foundation of Judaism. That's why the Torah says that for each and every Jew to be Jewish, and to live like a Jew, and to speak like a Jew, and to think like a Jew, to lead lead an active Jewish life, is something that's very near and dear to you, and it's also close to your heart. It's something that you can do out of love. Because that love is there, that love is inherent, it's innate, it's natural, it's inborn. Well... That explains that a Jew is ready to make the ultimate sacrifice and to martyr himself not to worship idols. But how does that motivate a Jew? The the verse states that to be Jewish and to act like a Jew and to think like a Jew, to fulfill all 613 mitzvot, is something that's very near and dear to each and every Jew. So the question is, that's only true of idolatry, that a Jew would rather give up his life than commit idolatry. But how can the verse say that this is very near and dear for each and every Jew to fulfill the entire, all 613 mitzvot? So then the al went on to explain, in chapter 20, that we heard 611 out of the 613 mitzvot were given through Moses, but the first two mitzvot, the first two commandments, we heard directly from God Himself. Because these two mitzvot contain within them all the other mitzvot. The very first commandment, believe in God, contains within it all the two hundred and forty-eight active mitzvot, positive mitzvot, and the mitzvah of Thou shalt not worship idols contains within it all the three hundred and sixty-five don'ts prohibitions. And he went and he goes on to he went on to explain how is that because what is the idea of belief in God and what is the idea of idolatry he explained in chapter 21 and then in chapter 21 what is the belief in the unity of God the belief belief in God is not only to believe that there is a God but to believe that God is the almighty and God is the all powerful and God runs this world is is in charge of this world not only he created the world but he's in charge of this world he runs the world he controls the world but the ultimate belief the very beginning the very first of the Ten Commandments is the belief that there is no other reality but God there is no existence outside of God So that is the deeper meaning of the mitzvah. How do you fulfill the mitzvah of the unity of God when you realize that there's no other reality but God? And then in chapter 22 he explains, what is idolatry in a broader sense? Idolatry is not just if you believe in another God, that there are two gods, or you believe that, that someone else has a power and force other than God. Idolatry is Anything that's an ego, anything that's separate from God, that's independent of God, that is idolatry. So in the last chapter, chapter 23, he explained that just like a Jew would be ready to sacrifice his life to fulfill his belief in God. So for that very same reason, that would motivate him to fulfill all 248 mitzvot. Why? Because every time you're doing a mitzvah, you are becoming unified with God. You're affirming the unity of God because when you do a mitzvah and you become an implement and a tool through which to fulfill God's will, so at that moment, you become, and your soul and the object of the mitzvah become an organ to God. You become intimate and connected and unified with God. So therefore, you are fulfilling. You're expressing your, that, that innate love for God. You're fulfilling the mitzvah of, of unifying God By doing a mitzvah, by becoming an expression of God's will. When every organ in your body becomes an expression of God's will, then your whole being becomes an organ to God. So you become unified with God. And then, on a deeper level, when a Jew studies Torah, you become even more intimate with God. You become even more unified with God then through a mitzvah. Because when you study Torah... You're studying God's mind. And from the inside out, from God's point of view, all there is is really is God Himself. The Torah is what engages God's mind. And everything that exists in this world is a demonstration of a point in the Torah. So when you're studying Torah, when you study that the the pig is kosher, it's not kosher, the pig is not kosher, or something is kosher, you are studying God's mind And everything that that exists out there in the world is is merely just an illustration, a demonstration of God's mind. There is nothing else. It's not that there is a world. When you do a mitzvah, there's a world. There's an external world. And you're using the world to fulfill God's will. So you're taking these external objects and you're using it to fulfill God's will. So they become a tool, they become an organ for... The soul, which is God. But when you study Torah, there's nothing external. All there is, is God's mind. And everything that exists is merely an illustration to illustrate a point in the Torah. There is nothing in the world that's not covered by the Torah. Because there's nothing in the world that exists without the Torah. The only reason anything that exists exists is only to bring out a point in the Torah. That's the only reason it was created. It has no other meaning. So when you're studying God's mind, you're experiencing reality from the inside out, the way God experiences it. There is nothing but God. All there is, is what engages God, what excites God, and that's, and that's the Torah. There is nothing else. So you become completely unified with God. So when the moment you're, you're studying Torah, like you're doing right now, you have the presence of the absolute Unity of God. There's nothing but God. Were we to sense this presence, this reality of God that we're experiencing at this very moment, we would we would be overwhelmed with ecstasy. We would our soul experience it. We don't feel it. But it doesn't change the reality. The reality is that when we're studying Torah at this moment, we are unified with the absolute unity of God. It's a very holy moment. Something very holy has happened. And our soul experiences it. And that's the ultimate level of holiness. That awe. Being in the presence of God and that awesomeness of being totally unified within the absolute unity of God at this very moment. It blows your mind. Were we to comprehend what's taking place at this very moment? It would just blow blow us blow. And it doesn't matter if you're studying the Tanya, you're studying Talmud, you're studying a, a piece of Chumash and Rashi. When you study God's mind, any letter in the Torah, any word in the Torah, any concept in the Torah, at that moment you are completely unified within God. And there is no other reality but God. And, that, and you manifest that reality at that moment, by studying Torah, by engaging your mind in God's mind. So now we understand why the verse says that to lead a Jewish life, to actively lead a Jewish life, and to think like a Jew and to speak like a Jew and to and to act like a Jew on a daily basis is something that's very near and dear to each and every Jew. And therefore, that, only, that motivates us not only to fulfill the mitzvah of believing in God. How do we fulfill the mitzvah of believing in God? Of unifying God. How do we become unified with God? By fulfilling the 248 mitzvot By studying His Torah. Every day of our lives, every time we do a mitzvah. Every time our our legs run to shul and to do a mitzvah, every time our hands, we give a penny to tzedakah, we do an act of goodness and kindness. Anytime we do a mitzvah, anytime we, we, we study Torah, we engage our mind and in God's mind with the Torah, we become completely unified with God. So we are fulfilling and affirming God's unity. So the same motivation that motivates us, the same drive that motivates us to fulfill the ultimate mitzvah, the truth is every time we do any mitzvah, that's how we affirm and that's how we fulfill the mitzvah of unifying God. There was a beautiful story. The, the Mittler Rebbe, the second Lubavitch Rebbe, the son of the author of the Balatanya, the altar Rebbe, used to travel to visit his chassidim in different towns. Not everyone had the opportunity to visit him in Lubavitch, which was the headquarters of the Chabad, Lubavitch movement. And once he was traveling, it was, uh, you know, it was very horse and buggy, and it was in winter in Russia. And it was a long day, and he was tired, he was exhausted, and he was hungry. Finally, late at night, they arrive at the inn. What's the first thing he did? With his coat still on, he ran to the bookshelf. He took out a code of Jewish law, and he said, this is God's will. This is God's mind. And he spent all night, he didn't even take his coat off, didn't even run to the fireplace to warm up. He forgot that he's hungry, he forgot that he's exhausted, that he's tired, and he spent all night just learning. Because he was so excited about the opportunity and the ability to connect and to become unified with God. So this is the innate natural love that each and every Jew has for God that motivates us to study Torah and to do mitzvah on a daily basis in our daily lives so now in chapter 24 is going to explain this also explains why the Torah says that to fulfill the 365 prohibitions the negative mitzvah the don'ts is also something that's very near and dear to each and every Jew because sins a Jew would rather give up his life than worship idols so the truth is every time you do a sin it's like worshiping idols it's the same idea and that's
0: what he's going to explain in this chapter. Page 312. Since everything in the realm of holiness has its counterpart in the unholy realms of the Sitra Akra, there is also an unholy counterpart to the observance of the mitzvot and to torah study, which produce union with God.
1: Everything in the world is a plus, is a minus, is a plus and a minus. There's a positive and there's a negative. There's a balance. God gave us free Freedom of choice. So, just like in the positive sense, in the plus side,
0: we become unified with God through the 248 mitzvah. So, the counterpart is continue. Their counterpart is the 365 prohibitions stated in the Torah and all the rabbinical prohibitions, since they are contrary to and the very opposite of God's will and wisdom, they represent total and complete separation from His unity and oneness. It doesn't matter whether it's a biblical commandment, whether it's a rabbinic commandment,
1: or even even if it's just a Jewish custom. All of them have one thing in common. Whether it's the 613 biblical commandments, or whether it's the hundreds of rabbinic commandments, whether it's a Jewish custom, they all share one thing in common. It is the will of Hashem. It's the will of God only difference is how this will is manifest, how this will was revealed. Was it revealed in the written Torah? Was it revealed in the oral Torah? Was it revealed through Jewish initiative, called the Jewish custom? But either way, this is the will of God. Now, once I know that this is the will of God, what difference does it make to me? If it's a great mitzvah, a small mitzvah, a minor mitzvah, a major mitzvah, a major prohibition a minor prohibition a biblical prohibition a rabbinic prohibition just a jewish custom what difference does it make this is the will of god the question is am i connected to god am i not connected to god there's no neutral it's one or the other either i'm connected to god and i my whole being is an implementation of god's will and i'm a vehicle to implement God's will and I become like an organ to God like a body to the soul where I become unified with God or I'm disconnected from God I, I don't follow God's will so what difference does it make how God's will is manifest whether it's through the five books in the Torah or whether it's through the prophets or through the writings or it's through the rabbinics or it's through, or it's through a rabbi the rabbis that gave us the Jewish customs, what difference does it make?
0: Either I'm connected or I'm not connected. Continue. They are the same as the Sitra Achra and the Kelipah, which are called idolatry and other gods, since the internal aspect of the divine will is concealed from them, as explained above, that they receive their life force from the hinder part of the divine will, the level of achoraim And for this reason... They are called Elokim Acherim, other gods. Since they they are disconnected from God, they're not
1: tuned in with God's innermost will and desire. Therefore, they're called they call idolatry. And the other gods, because they receive their life force from, so to speak, when you hate someone, you just you don't even want to look them in the face, you just throw them. If you have to give them something, you turn your back and says, "Here, I don't want to see you. Take." so when you do something that goes against the will of God God desires us to do so and so and to behave so and so and instead either a sin of omission or a sin of commission we are not fulfilling God's wish and desire and instead we are doing the opposite you know What's the what's this first sign of illness in a person? A, health, a healthy body is unselfconscious. A healthy body is totally tuned in with the soul and does exactly what the soul wants him to do. You want to move your hand? This, the body automatically moves the hand. Imagine if the body starts rebelling against the soul. You want to move your hand? The body says, no, I don't want to move my hand. You check into a hospital. I mean, that that person is is very dire, is, is direly ill, critically ill. When the body stops responding to the soul, and the body has a mind of its own, and the body is aware of itself, self awareness. The moment you become aware of yourself, it's a first sign of illness. A healthy body is unselfconscious. Is light. A healthy, a living person is light. A corpse is very heavy. A living person is very light. And you're conscious of you. The moment you become conscious of yourself, that, that's a sign of illness. And the same is spiritual. The moment God wants one thing, and I want my own thing. And I do the exact opposite of what God wants. When the body starts rebelling against its own soul, that's the opposite side. That's the other side. That's klipa. That's the shell. That's disconnected. That's a sign of unhealth.
0: Continue. Just as the forbidden actions themselves represent separation from godliness, so too the three garments of a Jew's animal soul, which stems from the kelipah of Noga, namely the thought, speech, and action that are clothed in, that think, speak, or act in violation of the 365 Torah prohibitions, or any of the rabbinic injunctions. And similarly, the essence of the soul itself, which is clothed in its garments, all of them, become completely united with the sitra achra and kelipa, called avodah zara, that is, idolatry. So just like when you do a
1: mitzvah, you become a tool and an implement to God's innermost will and desire, and you become unified with God. So when you go against the will of God, and you follow the klippa then you become unified with the klippa you become unified with the, with the opposite of, of godliness. With idolatry, you become unified with idolatry, the forces of idolatry, with the independent forces of idolatry that consider themselves separate and independent of God. God wants one thing, and you want something else. You want the exact opposite of what God wants. That's idolatry. That there is a reality independent and outside and separate and opposite, opposite of God. And when you follow those desires in you and you think and speak and act in a way that contrary to what God God's expressed wish and desire of us is, then you become unified with, with idolatry. Your being at that moment, your 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 thoughts, speech and action, and even your soul, at that moment you become unified with idolatry. So your whole being at that moment becomes unified with idolatry. So it's the equivalent of worshiping idols. It's the same idea. Because as he explained, worshiping idols doesn't necessarily mean that you believe in two gods. Or you believe that that the God shares uh, there's another power or force in this universe. Belief in idols means you believe that there is an independent existence outside of God. That is idolatry. So the moment you Go against, contrary to Hashem's wish and desire, at that moment you become unified. You become unified with that, with the, with the, with the, with idolatry, which is that independent God wants one thing, and I have my own ego, my own agendas, my own wish and my own desire, and I want the exact opposite of what God wants. So at that moment, your being becomes unified with idolatry. So that that is the equivalent of idolatry. And just like a Jew would rather give up his life than worship idols. You, have to, you, have, you should be ready to give up your life rather than commit a sin of commission, rather than violating a single prohibition in the Torah, biblical or rabbinic, because it's, it's idolatry. Even if it's a rabbinic prohibition, even if it goes against a Jewish custom, then at that moment you're going against the will of Hashem. So you're, you're demonstrating Your independence, your separation, your ego. God wants one thing and I want another thing. And I'm going to follow my agenda. So at that moment, your being becomes unified with idolatry. And if a Jew cannot be disconnected from God, and you're ready to give up your life and make the ultimate sacrifice for your belief in the unity of God, then for that same reason, you should be ready to give up your life rather than violate a single transgression, or prohibition in the Torah. It doesn't matter if it's biblical or rabbinic. If the body will start revolting against the soul, doing the opposite of the soul, then that's real serious business. So the same thing is with spiritual. As long as we're egoless, as long as we're completely unified with God and our whole being is an implement and an organ, an expression of God, then we are completely unified with God. When our thought, our speech, our action, our daily behavior, our mind is fully engaged in Torah, and we are engaged in, in a Jewish lifestyle, and then we are completely healthy. Spiritually healthy. But the moment we sense ourselves, we are independent of God. We feel egotistical. We don't feel a connection with God. That is... That is idolatry. For example, and, and this could even mean on a very subtle level, if a person, let's say a person... Praise to God obviously he believes in God he's praying to God and he knows that if you want to be successful in business you have to speak to the big boss you know that that God is in charge of this world is in control of this world So, you want to be healthy you want to be successful you got to give God what he wants so I'll make time to pray and I'll make I'll make sure to give charity to give tzedakah and I'll do the mitzvot but once I have taken care of my duties then I go into, into the business mode I roll up my sleeves I did what you asked me to do and now I'm getting down to business now I'm going to do what I wanted so in, in a sense he doesn't attribute his business success when he's successful, he doesn't attribute it, you know, maybe I'm successful because I prayed. And even if he does attribute it, yes, I'm successful because I prayed. I know that the success came because I prayed, because I gave tzedakah, because I'm a good person, because I did good things, and I, I acted responsibly, I acted maturely, I found time to study Torah, I gave God what He wanted Him. But that was just a means to an end. All of that was like a barter. Okay, God, I did what you want. Now you give me what I want. What do I want? I want business. I want money. I want success. Why do you want business? Why do you want money? Why do you want success? Because I, because I like it. I want it. I want good things in life. And I want to be successful. So you make a barter deal with God. Listen, I'll give you your share. I'm going to find time to study Torah. I understand if I don't find time to study Torah, and I don't find time to pray, you're not going to find time for me either. So all I can work eighteen hours a day, and I won't be successful because I don't have God's blessing. You find the time to study Torah, and you find the time to come to shul, and you find the time to you give God what He wants. Then God will find the time. Yes, you'll maybe instead of working eighteen hours a day, in twelve hours you'll have all the success you need because you have God's blessing. So did you recognize. It? But what's your agenda? What's your life all about? What are you living for? You're not living to pray. Study Torah, to do a mitzvah, to act selflessly, to do a, to give tzedakah. You're living, but I want to be successful. In order for me to get what I want, I have to give God. So that that's that's not healthy. That means that the body has an agenda of its own. The body is self-conscious. You have a mind of your own. You have an agenda of your own. There is the soul. You know that the soul dominates the body, and you you will obey the soul. But nevertheless, what's your identity? Your identity is is your ego, is your self. Materialism. Acquire possessions. What is the sign of health? The sign of health is when the body is completely unself-conscious. There's no ego. The body has no agenda of its own. The identity of the body is the identity of the soul. The agenda of the body is the agenda of the soul. It has no other agenda. In other words, what do I live for? I live for to pray, to study Torah, to do a mitzvah. But God wants us to be a world. and He wants us to be practical and to be successful. Yes, of course, I'm going to work and I'm going to be successful. And God will help me and bless me. But that's the means. What's the end? How do I define myself? What's my life all about? My life is all about... I can't wait for Shabbos. I can't wait till I can pray. It's refreshing. I refresh myself. I look forward. Yes. Quantity-wise, I spend most of my time is engaged in my career, in my business. Six days a week you work. Only one day... But how do I define myself quality-wise? Where am I at? What's my identity? Who am I... What, when do I live it up? What do I look forward to? That hour of learning a week... That's what I look forward to. That's that's what I live it up. That's who I am. Everything else is just a means to an end. That's a healthy person. That's holiness. That's when you're united with God. That's when you affirm God's unity. That's when you're not worshipping idols. But the Jew who serves God in order to have this bar to deal with God, that's idolatry. You are your ego. You're independent. You have your own agenda. Yes, you obey God. You're religious. You obey God. God is the big boss. You're not foolish. You know who bro- who butters your bread. Who, who who are you kidding? Who butters your bread? You think if I don't have time to come to shul, and I don't have time to put on film, and I don't have time to study Torah, and I don't have time, I don't have time to take a penny out of my pocket and to share it with a to give tzedakah. You think I'm going to be successful? That's what you know that's foolish. Of course, I know if I want to have any success in my life, I have to be connected with God. But That's just the means. The end is, the body is the end. The soul is just the means. That's idolatry. That's where the body is self-conscious. That's a sign of spiritual unhealth. That's unplugged, being unplugged, being disconnected. But now he's going to say, when a Jew sins, it's even
0: worse than idolatry. Why is it worse than idolatry? Not only are they united with the Kelipah and thus equal to it, but furthermore they become secondary and subordinate to it, and much lower and more debased than it for the kalipa is not clothed in a corporeal body and hence is more exposed to the divine light it knows its master and does not rebel against him god forbid by any independent act of sending its evil messengers other than in the service of god any evil act of the sitra Achra is performed only in the service of god thus the kalipot that are not clothed in a body cannot rebel against God's will. Only the animal soul clothed in the human body can do so. Hence, it is even lower than the Kelipah. All the forces
1: of evil, the the demons, or 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 the negative angels, negative energy, they, since they're not clothed in the body, they're not materialistic, so therefore they are not really, they cannot oppose God. They're fulfilling their mission. It's part of the mission. As a beautiful analogy given by the Baal the king wanted to test his subjects once. So he he asked one of his ministers, his faithful minister, to pretend and to create a rebellion. Just to test the people who will follow him, who will be foolish enough to follow him and who will remain loyal to the king. And they were able to separate the, the, the men from the boys, those who've who got caught up in the rebellion, versus those who remained faithful to the king. Until the one person came and he exposed the whole thing. He says, you're not a rebel. You're an agent. You're working for the king. And then it was all over. Because once you know the secret, then, then it's all over. It's just a pretense. The whole thing is a lie. It's a mirage. When we look at this world and these negative forces and... And and their temptations and distractions and what people call the Satan and and but the truth is he is a holy angel just like all the other angels. He's just fulfilling his mission. It's a mirage. It's just a test. That's all it is. Hashem is just testing us. Deep down the Satan is praying. Don't don't fall for me. I'm, I'm just here to test you. Be strong. So it's just a mirage. So the, even the negative forces are really just fulfilling their mission. It's like a story with Rabbi Naftali of, of Rupshitz. He was a very sharp, very sharp. So as a child, it was an Eastern European winter and his father woke him up early to wake up to come to shul. And it was snowing, it was a blizzard, and he was warm under the blanket, he didn't want to wake up. So he comes late, his father says, why don't you learn a lesson from your evil inclination you didn't want to get out of bed because evil inclination was telling you stay under the covers why go to shul it's too cold too lazy look your evil inclination was not lazy he was up at 5 in the morning he was already working full time <laughs> he, he was, <laughs> so Navtali Nav, Nav, totally smiled He's a little boy he says yeah but the Yetzirah doesn't have a Yetzirah <laughs> he doesn't have an evil inclination telling you he's doing his job so he has nothing stopping him that's exactly his mission but I have a har telling me trying to stop me and to slow me down so the, 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 the energy the negative energies negative forces in this world the negative angels they cannot rebel against God because they are agents of God they're also angels they're also fulfilling a mission why? because since they're not enclosed in a physical body Therefore, they know of God. They sense God. They're not totally disconnected from God. They can't rebel against God. Versus a human being, since we are, imbi- we are souls and bodies, so as a result of our body, which is so dense and materialistic, it totally obstructs ungodliness. It totally blocks out any sense of godliness. So much so that we can rebel against God. We can disobey God. An angel can't disobey God. We can disobey God. With, with equanimity doesn't bother us we sleep like a babe God says one thing he wrote in this Torah thou shall not and we go ahead and do it anyway or he says thou shalt. and we and we don't do it cold bloodedly doesn't even bother us an angel is not possible how can you rebel against God it's impossible because an angel is spiritual when you're spiritual there's some connection even a negative angel even negative energy And the forces of evil actually feed off. They're, they're like parasites. They feed off human beings. It's like, take a society. Society has a police force. If, if everyone is law-abiding, the police have nothing to do. <laughs> they're out of business. They really have nothing to do. If everyone is a mensch and everyone is law-abiding, they're there, but you don't even notice their presence. Because they don't. But the moment you act criminally, they become active. And then, then you have the police, and you have the judge, and then you have the sentencing. You, you activate a whole, a whole society of, of, of criminality, a whole underworld. But it's the criminal choices that feed that whole world. If we were not to feed that world, if we all acted, follow our better better self, and listened to our inner voice, our inner consciousness, and we all led wholesome lives... And we all made the wise and right choices, then evil would shrink. There, there, there's nothing to nourish it. There's nothing to nurture it to sustain it. We sustain it, but it's like a parasite. Because if evil is so successful, if everyone becomes evil and criminal, it's out of business. <laughs> Criminality can only thrive in a, in a society that's more or less decent, that's wealthy and affluent and, and decent, and then you then you can come and and act like a parasite and. And gnash off this energy and try to to, to uh, try to steal from this one and try to to uh, con that one. You know, society, which is all criminals, it falls apart. It reaches its limits. It self-destructs. Nazi Germany it self-destructive. It became so evil. It just just self-destructed. You reach a point where society becomes all criminal. Then, so it, it's a self-destructive force because. It destroys the person. The evil destroys the person. It nourishes you. It takes away, it sucks out anything that's good within you. It takes away, it robs you of your innocence. Robs you of your wholesomeness. But by the time it's done with you, there's nothing left to suck out. And then the person is destroyed. And when the person is destroyed, the evil is destroyed in the process because it's a parasite. So it's a dead end. It's really self destruct It's a dead end. But it doesn't care. It's, It's suicidal. It'll suck you. They'll tempt you, first they'll tempt you, create a dazzling picture. Oh, beautiful lifestyle. Come, come to the casino, come. Then they'll rob you and destroy you and suck you in until you become an addict. And then you destroy it and then spit you out and then punish you and then destroy you. And then it destroys itself in the process. So it's a suicidal, it's a dead end, it goes nowhere. But that's the fo- that's God created the force of evil. It's like a check. It's like a, a um, it's it's a check. When when things get out of hand, then the police enforce the law and punish. So it creates a certain uh, check and balance. But we feed the forces of evil. It has no energy on its own. On its own, it's 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 very passive. It's. So, Because we are the only ones who can violate, transgress a prohibition. Go against God's will. Evil itself can go against God's will. The negative forces, negative angels can go against God's will. We are the only ones who can go against God's will. When we go against God's will, we nourish. We give a burst of energy. And therefore, the greater the person, the holier the person, the greater the potential. The Talmud says the greater the person, the greater is his evil inclination. The purer, the holier a person is. It's like, where, where do the criminals hang out? They're going to come to the Upper East Side. And now, now you have something to nash on. Here you have something to rob. Who are they going to go after? They're going to go after the holy person. The person who's holy, who's a deep soul, an intense soul, a powerful soul, pure, sincere. And they're going to latch on to that person, try to get him to seduce him, and try to get him to sucker him in. And to fall, that he should he should sully himself and dirty himself and and stumble and lose his spirituality and lose lose his godly sense because there's a lot to nasha. When you get that soul to sin or to fall or to become degraded, they have enough food to feed them for to nourish. You know, there was a beautiful story of Vashemta. Vashemta was sitting Shalashuddhis with his students, and the lights were dim and he asked everyone to tell a, a story and this simple Jew was sitting around the table and he said this is a very strange story he says where I am where I live right next door there's a haunted house and you always hear spirits there and, um, and they're always dancing in a great mood and and one 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 week they were like crying they were mourning and I asked him. I had a conversation with him. I said, what's, what's, what, what's going on? He said, I'll tell you. There's this holy rabbi in town. He's a saint. He fasts all week. From Sunday to Friday. Sundown, he fasts. And he prays and he studies Torah. But he has one sin. One grave sin. He comes home at night, Friday night. And his wife prepares him some milk. Because he's fasting for six days. And he's always upset. The milk is, he starts yelling at his wife, the milk is not ready, the milk is too cold, and the milk is too hot. Okay. And when he yells, he gets angry, loses his temper. We have enough energy to feed us for the whole week. Because this holy rabbi, who just spent six days learning and praying in and, and, and solitude, and here he loses his temper, which is the equivalent of idolatry, he gives us enough nourishment to last. He says, okay, so that, now you're always in a good mood. But why this week were you crying? And then he heard on Shabbos, they were dancing from joy like, like nothing else. So I'll tell you. This week he decided. He realized, you know, something is wrong with me. I really have a real character for him. I'm losing my temper. I'm getting angry. What's the use of all my learning and all my praying when God says, if you get angry, it's as if you worship idols. So I decided that I am going to prepare the milk myself and I'm going to put it away in a hidden place so when I come, I know where it is, I don't get angry at my wife. Anyway, so he hides it on top of the shelf in his library. Anyway, he comes home. and Meanwhile, the wife wants to prepare for him. And she's looking. Without knowing, by mistake, she was climbing up to the, to the, uh, to the top of the bookshelf she didn't even know the milk was there, so she, <laughs> she pulled off the whole top, top shelf, and the milk came pouring down. When the husband <laughs> saw this, that was over. He said, He was about to get a divorce. He says, Now, till now, I thought that maybe it's a mistake, maybe you're or Shlamozel. But now when I hit it, you also messed it up. Now I know you're out to get me. And he was yelling at her and screaming at her. And when they, so he says, A whole week we were crying, we thought that's it. That's the end of our nourishment. Because it's the rabbi getting angry that, that gave us enough nourishment to last all week. But now he's not going to get angry anymore. What are we going to live on? But now that he lost his temper and he got so angry, he's about to divorce his wife. He says, we have enough to nourish us for the next year. Anyway, after Shabbos, they, they, daven, they made dolah, abd- they, abd- they put on the lights and they saw that someone fainted. Because the rabbi the story was about was one of the students of Hashem when he was sitting right next to this person when he heard the story he realized what effect and impact his behavior had and he fainted so holiness the, the greater the level of holiness the greater the temptations or the greater the Yitzhah will plot and scheme to try to get the person to stumble and to degrade the person because that's how they nourish. That's how they nourish and that's how they, they receive energy. So it's only a human being who's clothed in a body, who has the ability to rebel against God, we can nourish and feed the forces of impurity, the satanic negative energies and forces of hatred in this world through our negative behavior, through our negative choices. But the forces
0: of evil itself, on their own, do not have the ability to rebel against God. So did Bilam say, "I cannot violate the word of God." Although Bilam was a kelipah, clothed in a body, yet when he spoke for the spiritual kelipah within him, the unholy prophetic power with which he wished to curse the Jewish people, he said, "I cannot violate the word of God." So, what do you mean, Bilam can violate? He's a
1: human being. He's in a, he's in a body. Bilam himself violated God's will. He curses out the donkey and he says and the, and the donkey God opened miraculously to the angel the donkey opened his mouth and the donkey talks back to Bilaam and he says have I ever been unfaithful to you? because Bilaam slept with his donkey he was into bestiality this was the greatest prophet uh, of his day and age the equivalent of Moses but of the opposite side of, of idolatry, of klipa the negative forces and with his force, he, he was an anti-Semite. And with his force, his power, he wanted to curse the Jewish people and obliterate the Jewish people. Use his spiritual energies to obliterate the Jewish people. So obviously, he's not allowed to sleep with with a donkey. <laughs> it's bestiality. It's one of the seven Noahide laws. He can't be more morally corrupt. And yet, he was a prophet. And yet, he was sleeping with his own donkey. So, and. How can Balaam say, I cannot violate the Word of God? He did violate the Word of God. So firstly, a person has freedom of choice. And as we learned earlier, that sometimes because of the choices you make, you lose your ability to control your your instinct. By nature, a human being has the ability to control himself, to discipline himself, mind over matter. We see it in real life. something matters to you, you have the ability of self-control. But the addict loses his ability of self-control because of the choices that he made that leads him to a point in his life where he's totally out of control. And even when he's self-destructing, he's harming himself, and it's no more fun. He doesn't even enjoy it anymore. He just can't stop because he lost his ability. So too, someone like Bilaam, as a result of the negative choices that he made in his life, he may have reached a point where he's addicted. He has a serious addiction, a serious problem, and he can't help himself and he's violating Hashem's will. But here, when he's speaking with a prophetic voice, he says, how can I violate if God will prophesy to me and God will command me and order me to do so-and-so? I can't transgress, I can't violate God's will. It's impossible. A spiritual force, even the negative forces, don't have the ability to rebel against God, don't have the chutzpah to rebel against God.
0: Continue. Although the kelipot are called Avodah Zarah, idolatry, which is a denial of God, yet they refer to him as the God of gods, indicating that they do not deny him completely. They cannot violate God's will, for they know and perceive that he is their life and sustenance, since they derive their nurture from the hindermost aspect of the divine will which encompasses them. It is only the sustenance and life force that is within them, the internal life force which constitutes the identity of every created being, as explained in chapter 22, that is in a state of exile so that they regard themselves as gods, which is a denial of God's unity. But they are not so completely heretical as to deny God and to assert that He does not exist. On the contrary, they regard Him as the God of gods, recognizing that their life and existence ultimately derive from His will. Therefore, they never rebel against God's will. It follows, then, that the person who does violate God's will is greatly inferior to and more debased than the Kelipah and Sitra Akhra, which are called Avodah Zarah, and other gods. He is separated completely from God's unity and oneness even more than they are, as though denying his unity even more radically than they, God forbid. The Jew who violates God's will
1: is on a lower level, is inferior, and is more degraded than the actual idolatry. Because the forces of evil, the negative forces that feel independent, that are egotistical and arrogant and feel independent, but nevertheless they acknowledge God and they can't deny God. But the Jew who violates God's will, God's express wish, and nonchalantly just go ahead and violate His will, it's not only that we deny that there's no other reality than God. We deny that God is even in charge or in control. God says one thing and I do the opposite. So it's not only that the body senses itself and has a healthy sense of self, but the body actually denying the soul, going against the soul. So the Jew who violates God's will is so unplugged, is so disconnected, even more so than, than, than the idolatry itself. Even all the negative forces in the universe cannot go against God's wish, And here... A human being, flesh and blood. God is so abstract to us. God is so distant. God is so not a reality to us. And not only do we sense ourselves and we have our own egos and our own identities and our own agendas, but we go ahead and cold bloodedly and nonchalantly we go ahead and violate God's express wish and will, as expressed in the code of Jewish law, as expressed in the Torah, whether biblical or rabbinic. So, in a way, it's more degrading, it's much lower it's a greater disconnect. It's a greater rebellion than even even the idol itself. So if a Jew is ready to give up his life, rather than worship and bow down to an idol, because our love for God is so intense and so powerful, that it's simply not an option for us to be disconnected from God and therefore we're ready to give up our life rather than bow down to the idol how much more so that we have to be ready to give up our life than violating and transgressing a single negative prohibition whether biblical or a bit because it's idolatry and even worse because not only are you an entity for yourself are you denying God's absolute unity that there's no other reality than God you're even denying that God is in charge that, that God is in control the body listens to the soul. And you're not even listening to your own soul? Rebelling against your own soul? Your own life source? You're nothing without the soul. We're nothing without God. And we have the chutzpah to go ahead and violate? Trespass? Transgress? Go ahead and go against God's express wish and will and desire? That, that's outright rebellion. That, that's worse. It's a greater disconnect. It's more degrading than, than idolatry itself. And that's why we are able to sustain the evil forces. It's only our choices when we violate and transgress a prohibition, we sustain and we feed, we nourish. Because the negative forces are like blood suckers. They feed off, we give them energy. We give them new fresh blood, fresh energy. Energy that should have gone towards holiness. And instead we we give them fresh Energy. So, because only we are able to violate and go against God's will, God's wish and desire. So it's, wor- it's worse than idolatry. And therefore, the Torah says that for a Jew to fulfill all of the Torah mitzvah, including the 365 prohibitions, where God forbid not to, not to uh, commit a sin of omission, not to violate the 248 mitzvahs by not doing a mitzvah, is something that's very near and dear to every Jew if we're ready to give up our life rather than bow down to an idol how much more so that we should be ready to give up our life make a sacrifice rather than God forbid violate a single prohibition in the Torah. God's will for us is sacred and we live to fulfill God's will that is our life, that is our being we don't have any other agendas That is our whole being. To go ahead and to violate Hashem's will, this is worse than
0: idolatry itself.
1: Can I continue? This is similar.
0: This is similar to what is written in Etz Chaim, Portal 42, end of Chapter 4, that the evil in this corporeal world is the dregs of the Korskalipot. It is the sediment of the purifying process, and so on. That is, after whatever sparks of good that are found in the kelipot have been isolated and elevated, what remains is Kelipat in its lowest, coarsest form. This Kelipat is the evil found in this material world. For this reason, all matters of this world are harsh and evil, and the wicked prevail in it, and so forth. There are many
1: different levels of purification. Just like when a person eats, When you eat, the food goes through a whole process. All the nourishing aspects are removed and are incorporated in the body. And everything else is flushed out. That becomes the klipa. So after everything is extracted, anything good, any spark is extracted, what's left, the dregs, the sediment, which is the coarsest part of the wine, the sediment on the bottom, that has no use anymore, and that the coarsest part that settles to the bottom, and that's our world, our materialistic world. This is scraping the bottom of the barrel. It's it's overwhelmingly evil. Um, it's very it could be very disheartening and disillusioning. The more you open your eyes, and the more you realize what a false world we live in. It's hard to trust anything, because you see how everything is so riddled with lies and deception. Nothing is the way it seems. Even people are not what they seem. There are people who appear to be very nice on the surface, very suave. But it's just a cover-up. Inside, they're very selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed. They won't be there for you in a moment of truth. Not because they're mean, just because they're self-absorbed they have no time and energy for you they'll be very smooth and very charming but they won't be there for you when you really need them and there are people in the country there are people who may come across as very gruff on the surface but they have hearts of gold the moment of truth they'll be there for you so nothing nothing is what it seems to be it's like a russian doll everything is a riddle with an enigma and you know the more you delve deeply and the reality, it's all—it's like a—it's like a house of cards. There's no real faith or trust or, or reality or truth. Everything is lies. No one trusts the word they hear in the media. <laughs> no one trusts the word a politician says. How do you know a politician is lying? You see his lips move. Um, it, you know, it's—it's it's, people. You just become so cynical that that it's just lies upon lies, and especially when you start reading. Today with the freedom of information or after 40, 50 years they start opening up all the old books and you start reading what really happened and you hear it starts, starts standing on its head. You know, the people who are in charge, the people who are running things, double, you know, it's so false and it's so <laughs> treacherous and conniving and cynical and, and nothing is what it seems and just it's just abuse of power and abuse of... So the more that you delve into this world, maybe ignorance is bliss, but the more you delve into reality and the way people live and the way people are, and society is just one false layer upon another false layer upon another false layer. It's very harsh. It's a very harsh world. It's a very cynical, harsh, banal, evil. And, um, but nonetheless, the potential that we have in this world, the potential that we have for good, the potential that we have for change. The potential that we have in this world, we don't have in any other world. This is rich with potential. If you're wise enough to connect with something real, connect with the Torah and Mitzvah, it's precious, it's gems. And you have the ability to become wealthy in the spiritual sense, to acquire true wealth and possession, by acquiring true wisdom, Torah wisdom. The more Tauri stuff. And by acquiring true wealth, good deeds, and mitzvah, and wholesomeness, and goodness, the potential that we have in this world is so ripe with potential. You can become a billionaire. It's ripe with potential. You just have to make the wise investment. Don't invest in junk, junk bonds, junk food. Invest in something real. And you can can become extremely. The opportunities we have in this world are, are incredible. That's why a Jew is so excited and so optimistic. About opportunities. Not because we're not realistic. We know what this world is. We don't romanticize. We know how, if anything, the Jew has, has been on the brunt of this evil. Who has suffered more than anyone else in this world? Who has suffered from the double talk and the deception? When you read how, we were, how Israel was double-crossed by our supposed best friends, our secrets were given away to our worst enemies behind, behind our back by our supposed friends the double crossing and the conniving and the evil that goes on behind the scenes it's enough it's enough to raise yes so we're not we're not closing our eyes we're not not wearing blinders we know we know how corrupt and how rotten things could be and yet we're optimistic we're hopeful we're wholesome because we believe in God and we know that this world has a tremendous potential if you invest wisely and properly you can, you can, you can, the opportunities we have in this world we don't have anywhere else but, with, but the world on its own is a very harsh place very egotistical people are self, selfish self-centered self-absorbed and it's a very harsh place left to its own devices so the question is now the Alter Rebbe explained so eloquently how the verse states that to be Jewish and to live a Jewish life is something that's so dear and near to each and every one of us, to lead a full Jewish life in our daily life, in thought, speech, and action, to fulfill the positiveness and to avoid the prohibitions. Because Since every Jew is born with this powerful, intense love for Hashem, that we're ready to make the ultimate sacrifice for Hashem, and it's simply not an option for us to be disconnected from God. And how do we become unified with God through fulfilling the mitzvah? While if we transgress and violate a negative prohibition, whether biblical or rabbinic, it's the equivalent of idolatry, and it's even worse than idolatry. Because we outrightly deny, not only when we sin, not only do we deny that God is the only reality and there's no other reality but God, but we deny that God is even even the boss, that God is even in charge or control of this world. God says one thing and I do my own thing. The exact opposite of what God asked me, expressly wished me and asked me to do. So it's worse than I doubt. And that's why this world could be so harsh and negative. So if that's the case, Why is it? That begs the question. Why is it that a Jew is ready to sacrifice his life for God, make the ultimate sacrifice, and yet we sin with equanimity, nonchalantly? It doesn't bother us. It makes no sense. Here I'm ready to give up my life, rather than bow down to the cross or bow down to the idol, when for 2,000 years Jews were forced either to be baptized, they would rather die and be burnt to death at the order of the faith. Even the Moranos rather die or be burnt to death, rather than deny their Jewishness in that moment of truth. So, how can a Jew sin? Period. As the Zohar says, it says in the Torah, "Nefesh a soul that will sin. The Zohar puts a question mark after it. "Nefesh kisechta How is it possible? How can a Jew sin, even unintentional? Do we walk into a fire unintentional? Automatically, you, you, you see a fire. Consciously, subconsciously. You just back off. How can I just sin?
0: It goes contrary to our very essence. That's what Al-Turabi is going to explain now. This explains the commentary of our sages on the verse, If a man's wife turns aside and commits adultery, no man commits any transgression unless a spirit of folly has entered into him. The sages thus relate the root of shiste, turns aside, to shtut, folly. The Torah
1: is talking about the woman, the Saita, a woman who commits adultery. And the Torah uses the language, ki ishta. So the literal meaning is, if she turns aside. But the word sishta comes from the same root as folly, as shtut, a foolishness. So the Talmud says a person doesn't sin unless they act foolishly. What it means literally is, we see when a person sins, even a wise person, We'll do very foolish things. Once you have a passion for something and you want something, you'll do foolish things. And later on, when you're caught, you look back and you realize it's ridiculous. How did I do this? You're embarrassed. You're ashamed. But we do crazy things, insane things. You get so caught up in your passion that you want to receive it. Once you, once you, you put yourself in the receiving end, you're no longer in control. Once you want something, then, then you, you receive from it. Once you receive, you have no self-control. And no self-discipline, and you'll do you'll do whatever it takes, and you do things that are foolish. But you can't help yourself. But that's the simple meaning of the is saying here. On a deeper level, the Torah is telling us that how is it possible for a Jew to sin? The only reason, the only way, it's possible for a Jew to sin is is if you have it's a it's a crime of passion. It's a moment of in, pleading insanity. It's a moment of insanity. Every time for a Jew to sin, even the ability for a Jew to sin, it's a moment of insanity. It makes no sense. It's illogical, it's irrational, it makes no sense. It's inexplicable. And here we're talking about about someone who's prostituting themselves. We're talking about someone who has so little self-worth. A prostitute who prostitutes her body is someone who has no self-worth, no self-value. We're talking about someone who feels so worthless inside, who has no sense of responsibility or no sense of worth, of value, of strength, who's so weak that they just succumb to their most basic passion and don't care about the implications, don't care about the consequences. They're destroying themselves, they're destroying their marriage, they're destroying their children. Just for the momentary pleasure or for the the few dollars. Would, would, would destroy themselves in such a way. We're talking about someone who has no zero sense of value, zero sense of worth, who has no mind, who has no presence of mind, who has, who has no strength. That person doesn't care about life anymore. That person just kills. Anyone that can prostitute themselves is the someone who doesn't care. Doesn't care anymore. Doesn't care about life, doesn't care about themselves and couldn't care less about anyone else. And yet, the Torah says that even such a person were they to realize what they're about to do, that they're about to transgress and about to violate Hashem's will, they couldn't do it. That would give them all the strength they need to be able to overcome, to make that sacrifice, to be able to overcome that urge and that instinct. So even someone who's who's sexually addicted and they can't control them without a control. But were they to sense and to feel the power of the love that they have to Hashem? That it's simply not an option for them to be disconnected from God, to violate Hashem's will by prostituting themselves, by committing adultery, that would give them all the strength in the world they need to seize and desist. It's only because of that moment of insanity, because there's a disconnect, because they don't realize and they don't sense that what they're about to do is the equivalent of idolatry. And even worse than idolatry, that's the only reason they're able to go ahead and sin with equanimity and nonchalem so that's the deeper meaning of what the rabbis mean that a person doesn't sin even using the most extreme example a prostitute even such a person should have and would have the strength to overcome their urgent instinct and addiction if not for the fact that they have a moment of insanity every fiber of your being every bone in your body should yell against it should say stop you can't do this I can't commit suicide, it's spiritual suicide. For a Jew to sin, any sin, biblical or rabbinic, is spiritual suicide. It's not an option, you can't. But, but we do.
0: It's a moment of insanity. That's the only explanation.
1: There's no other explanation.
0: They continue, for even. For even an adulterous woman with her frivolous nature could have controlled her passionate drive were it not for the spirit of folly within her which covers and conceals the hidden love within her divine soul that yearns to cleave to her faith in God and to His unity and oneness, and that resists even on pain of death any separation from His unity through idol worship. That is, even this adulteress would willingly sacrifice her life rather than submit to coercion to practice idolatry. Even if this idol worship would consist merely of an empty act of prostrating herself before the idolized object without any belief in her heart, in the validity of idol worship. So as we learned earlier, there's one thing to worship idols, to believe in the idol.
1: But when you don't believe in the idol and you're just bowing down to the idol, it's not idolatry. And yet, you wouldn't, you were ready to sacrifice your life rather than even externally and superficially just bowing down, just appearing to bow down and worship you. So your connection to God is so intense, it's so powerful, that even after a lifetime, of frivolity, after a lifetime of addiction, a lifetime of being steeped in materialism, and totally being disconnected consciously from anything godly or Jewish or spiritual or holy, in the moment of truth, you would rather give up your life rather than bow down externally and superficially. That's how powerful your relationship, your connection to God is. And each and every Jew has this connection. So if this frivolous person is ready to give up her life rather than bow down to idols...
0: How much more so continue now? Now, if her hidden love of God has the power to enable her to face death rather than be separated from Him, surely then it is within its power to overcome the temptation and lust for adultery, which is lighter suffering than death, may God protect us. It is only the spirit of folly, the notion that her sin will not tear her away from godliness that leads her to commit adultery. So it's a spirit of folly. It's a,
1: a moment of insanity. A crime of passion. That we forget. We forget. We think to ourselves, I'm still a good Jew. So, I'm not perfect. I'm a good Jew at heart. So, I sin. I'm still a good Jew. I still march. I still send in my donation. I'm a good Jew. So, I sin. When you put to the test, worship idol and not worship idol there you can't delude yourself. You reach a point where you can't delude yourself. Are you a Jew or aren't you a Jew? Are you going to bow down or aren't you going to bow down? In that case, you can no longer delude yourself. So then you wake up. And then your choice is clear. It's not even an option. But regarding other sins, when the choice is not clear, in your mind, in your befuddled state, in your state of sleeping, in your dream state, You can dream of two opposites. I'm a Jew, I'm a good Jew, and sin, and violate, and transgress, and and violate a prohibition, go against Hashem's will, and yet I'm
0: still a good Jew. So that's a spirit of folly. Okay, continue. It might be argued. It might be argued, however, that she differentiates between idolatry and adultery. She regards the former as much more heinous, and thus more certain to tear her away from God than the latter. Perhaps this differentiation, not the spirit of folly, is why she would sacrifice her life rather than practice idolatry, yet at the same time she would not sacrifice her temptation for adultery. In answer, the Alter Rebbe states, The distinction she makes between the prohibition against idolatry and that against adultery is also but a spirit of folly stemming from the Kalipa. It renders her insensitive to the enormous breach between herself and God that is created by every sin. If she were aware of this breach, she would certainly overcome desire and refrain from sin.
1: That alone is also part of the, of the folly, it's also part of the foolishness or the insanity. To make such a distinction is insane. Because as we just learned elaborately, there is no distinction. Every time you violate, you transgress Hashem's will, you become an implement, a tool, an expression of the Avodhazara, of Klippa. And in a way, it's even more degrading than the Klippa, it's even more degrading than idolatry, because you're outright rebelling against God. The idol acknowledges God and acknowledges that God is the boss. But the idol considers itself an entity, has its own agenda, is arrogant, but it can't violate God's express wish and desire. But the Jew, who violates God's express wish and desire, not only does he deny the absolute unity of God, that there's no existence or reality outside of God, but he even denies that God is in charge or in control. So he's completely disconnected. So every time you violate, you go against Hashem's will, it's the equivalent of idolatry. So there, so there is no distinction. So this distinction is also insane. It makes no sense. How can you make any distinction between any of the 365 prohibitions, even a rabbinic prohibition and idolatry? So if you're ready to give up your life for idolatry, you should be ready to give up your life rather than, God forbid, go against one letter of the Code of Jewish Law. Do something that's expressly prohibited, whether in thought, speech or action.